If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. Uh, we're going to cover the entirety of that chapter uh, this morning, so we'll begin our, our reading uh, in uh, verse 1, again, uh, the book of Acts uh, chapter 14. Uh, one thing that uh, was called to my attention uh, this morning, and probably a number of you have kind of remembered this, maybe uh, over the last month, uh, but on January 27th, uh, that was the 10th anniversary of our beginning to worship here in this facility. And so uh, we have been here on this campus for 10 years, and uh, I guess the only thing to say is time flies when you're having fun. And so, uh, uh, but that's, uh, again, uh, God has been very gracious to us in providing uh, for us uh, this, this facility. And so uh, thank you for uh, your joining here at this place. Uh, at this time. Also, um, uh, Randy mentioned Wednesday night. Let me be very clear that uh, we want you, the adults, uh, to gather with us, the youth. Notice how I said that, us, the youth. Uh, I will be leading a study of the book of Hosea. There's a couple of things that I want you to see uh, besides hearing me teach. Um, one, see what God is doing among our young people and uh, that God has blessed us, and uh, I'm thankful for that. And then notice uh, the way so many of our uh, other young men are pouring their lives into these young people. Sunday school, uh, Sunday night, Wednesday night, throughout the course of the week, uh, these young people are receiving uh, ministry, they're being blessed, and, and they're blessing us. And so uh, we'll be back in the youth room, back to my left, your right, and we would love for you to come and uh, be a part of that as we study uh, the book of Hosea on uh, this uh, Wednesday night. Thankfully, Keith, it is not Ezekiel. Thank you for taking that off my plate. <laughs> All right. Again, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 14. We find the early church... Uh, particularly pointed out to us uh, these two early missionaries, uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, that these men were, first of all, unafraid to go into an unknown world to face unimaginable hardship because of the unmistakable call of God upon their lives, giving them an unrelenting commitment to the proclamation of what is still the unchanging gospel. They went, they unleashed the gospel, and while they were often bound by chains, the gospel was, and it always will be, an unbound gospel. The gospel is always powerful. It is always uh, there. Uh, demonstrating God's faithfulness to both His people and to all that will repent and believe. And so let's uh, read beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, 
who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. And they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And uh, there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in which they had believed, or in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had, they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word, for your testimony to your son, Jesus Christ, for that which he has done uh, for us at the cross on Calvary, for that which he does for us as he intercedes for us on the basis of that once and for all effective uh, sacrifice. Uh, Lord, we thank you that indeed this Bible that we have, this word of the Lord, this word of God, it is indeed 
the imperishable seed of the new birth. It will never fail. It will accomplish that for which you have uh, sent it. It will pr- bring about faith in those who repent and believe, Lord. We pray that you would bless your word to us today. Uh, may your spirit so work in us uh, that uh, we will be strengthened and encouraged. Lord, if there's one here today, I pray that you would so work through this imper- uh, imperishable seed, Lord, that you would cause them to believe your truth unto salvation. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, if you don't mind, uh, take your Bibles and open your Bible to the book of maps. Now, if you do not know where the book of maps is in your Bible, I commend you for being uh, so spiritual uh, that you don't go to the various apparati uh, provided in your Bible. Now, many of you that have been here for a while have heard my map story. Now, I am one, quite honestly, I'm I'm really intrigued with, with maps. Sometimes I sit out hunting, and I'll pull the little map we've got of the properties that we hunt on, and I find it very interesting to look around and say, that's there and that's there. Uh, I love pulling up Google Map and kind of looking at where the creeks and the rivers and the mountains flow, and uh, just just enjoy that, getting the uh, Rand McNally, Google it for you younger folks, but uh, it's actually made of paper, and you can turn the pages and actually kind of see uh, maps and landmarks and all of these things. Um, but at any rate, when I was at Beeson Divinity School taking uh, the second semester of New Testament, uh, it came time for us to take a, a test. And we were in a very large room, probably seated 70, 75, 80 students. And the professor walked in, went to the front row, started at one side, handed the stack of tests out, and they began to be passed back and forth down the aisle. And I started to hear this rising, murmuring roar kind of thing. You know, getting louder. And, and finally, when it got to me, I looked down and went, it's a map. And it was a map of Paul's missionary endeavors with no cities, just dots. And part of the test was to fill in every city at the appropriate dot. So I'm like, I haven't got a clue. I mean, I got a little bit of a clue, but didn't do very well. And so we came time to get the test back, and I made an 84 on that test. Now, that's been 25 years ago, so you can see it sticks out in my mind. I made an 84, so that's 16 less than 100. I think 12 of the points deducted were from that map. Now, two things. One... I went to the professor and said, that was a bit of dirty pool. And he laughed and said, I brought a map to class with me every single day. And it reminds me today of how oblivious we can be to the obvious. Right? Yeah. Second thing, probably I was a little pompous, a little arrogant about being a fairly decent student. And there was a young man that was in the same class, that made a 90 on the test. And I went up to him and said, there ain't no way you made a higher grade than me on that test. I said, I've watched you, you're just not that smart. I said, what? In love, in love. I mean, you know, spirit, truth, truth in love. It's all, you know, it's all good. 
And he told me, I said, well, how did you do it? He said, well, you know, I'm sitting there in church on Sundays, and I get tired of listening to the preacher, so I start looking at the maps in the back of the Bible. So if you don't know where the maps are in the back of your Bible, I commend you that you're at least paying attention in here and not looking for something good to distract you. And so, but you do find, and it is interesting, you do find in the maps, you find usually uh, a map, either sometimes it's three maps or sometimes it's one map, that will show you the, the journeys, the directions, and the places that the Apostle Paul went to preach uh, the gospel. And so we know that he began at Syrian Antioch. And if you remember, he went to the island of Cyprus, and then he goes uh, slightly north to get to the mainland of what we call Turkey now, Asia Minor. And he begins there, and he begins to work his way uh, north and east from through the cities that we saw last week and this week. And then what does he do? He makes his way all the way back through Pisidian Antioch, and then finally to Syrian Antioch, the place uh, that he had started uh, this endeavor. And so, uh, as I said, I enjoy looking at maps, and I spent a little time this morning, in fact, going, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting where those places are. Those of you that have traveled uh, to what we call the Holy Land may have actually visited some of these uh, ancient uh, sites. And so, uh, the Apostle Paul, in this text, chapter 14, uh, he and Barnabas are going to complete this first uh, uh, missionary uh, journey, this first uh, endeavor in which uh, they go and they preach uh, the gospel to Jew and Gentile. The gospel is effective, and of course the gospel is also that which uh, provokes unrest and even persecution. And so let's look first of all in the first seven verses of chapter 14. Uh, this ministry uh, there in Iconium and as the pattern is, we've mentioned it last time, to the Jew first, uh, there was a bit of a, a point of contact. And many times uh, Paul or, uh, would go and make this appeal that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and show that Jesus stands in continuity uh, with the God of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant uh, God. And as I noted a few weeks back, I did not realize this, but to the Roman mind, an older religion was a better religion. And so not only was he appealing to the Jews, but he was also appealing to the Romans that this is not a newfangled thing, this is not just the latest thing, but this is actually the continuation of what God has done throughout the course of history, beginning with Father Abraham, to save men and women, and boys and girls, uh, from uh, their sin. And so uh, Paul goes in to the synagogue, and we're told that a number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Now, some of the commentators, and you're familiar enough, you know that many times the Bible will say something about the response of people that they believed, and then it comes back that in actuality they didn't believe. Again, the first sermon that Jeff Dalton and Joe Rush ever heard me preach alluded to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, where it is said that the Jews believed. But guess what? They didn't. Go back and read John 8. You'll understand what I'm talking about. But it seems probably the reference here is to the gospel being effective. And a great number truly uh, believed the gospel uh, that they were saved. And then look at verse 2. It always happens this way. Now, you could say, well, why doesn't God save everybody? Now, that's a reasonable question. Always remember 
But the astounding thing is that God saves anybody. He's not required to save anybody. All men are in rebellion against God, and it is only an act of His sheer mercy and grace that He saves anyone. And so there are some that are not saved. They're described as unbelieving Jews who stir the pot, influencing the the Gentiles even to the place of poisoning uh, their minds against those who had believed in the message that they had uh, embraced. And so the truth is, we know this, it's true today, it was true then, Satan does not go down easily. And it seems to be an appropriate image. Some of you uh, have probably experienced this. But if you have ever ran over uh, a snake in your car, and if you look back at that snake, he is flipping and flopping and carrying on and lashing out in every direction. He may be in his death throes, but he is trying to strike out at whatever's there. And I think that's an apt picture of Satan. At the cross, Satan was delivered the death blow. And that which he is doing in our world is actually him in his death throes. And to be sure, he is dangerous. He is, he is deadly. He is devious. He is active. But he is defeated. Okay, so again, he, he, he is still in the world and he, he's still using his agents uh, to, to create uh, difficulties uh, for those that believe. An interesting word here in uh, verse 2, the unbelieving Jews. The, uh, uh, the Greek there is a word, uh, apatheo, that, that looks like it might actually be the word uh, from where, where we get the word apathetic. I don't know that. No commentator said that, so I may be off base. But again, when you bring it forward from Greek to English, it sure does look like a word that would be close to our apathetic. But I think they were more than apathetic here. It wasn't live live and let live. We don't care. You can believe your thing. We'll believe ours. The nuance here, uh, the the, um, um, connotation of the word is they were hostile. There was hostility in their uh, unbelief. They were opposed to the message, the messenger, and those who would uh, receive uh, this message. And they stirred people up. That is, they inflamed their emotions. They ignited uh, their their passions. In very illustrative language, they poisoned their minds. And I can think of at least three ways that that could that functioned then and still functions today. First, they turned them against the messenger. They indicted the messengers. They undermined the message that this can't be right, this can't be true. Or they, again, told those that were hearers of those messages, that's not what you need. Imagine someone in your family walking into your house I felt a little tightness in my chest today. And you could go, well, suck it up, buttercup. You're always whining about this, that, or the other. There's nothing wrong with you. You know, you, you indict the person that, that feels afflicted. Or he could, and then he could say, well, I'm going to go to the doctor. And you go, well, he's a quack. You know, all he's going to do is say, take two aspirin and call, you, call me back in the morning. Okay? So you're indicting the messenger Okay, you've indicted the message that all, you know, all he's going to do is t- t- take two aspirin and call me in the morning, and you've said there's really nothing wrong with you. And so you can see how that, in a gospel setting, 
can be that which poisons the minds of those who must hear, who need to hear. You can't rely on the messenger. The, the message is false, and even, even if it were true, you don't need it. Okay? You're, you're not a sinner in need of salvation. Now, <clears throat> no offense to be taken here this morning, okay? But you know one of my perverse pleasures. One of the funniest men in the state is none other than some folks' beloved head football coach, Nick Saban. I think he's hilarious. And so, I, and now, probably the greatest line ever uttered by a football coach was by the late Mike Leach. They're listening to their fat little girlfriends. Now, that, that's classic. That's good, okay? Now, see, y'all smile. Y'all are actually smiling today. That's awesome. Okay. But when Nick Saban goes on his, that's what? Rat poison. And he, he, he goes on, and, and I got to believe, I mean, I think I'd pay to be a journalist in one of those news conferences. To, I, I mean, I, I, would la- I would lie awake the night before. What can I ask him to send him over the moon that, that, that can get him going off on one of these jags? And so what does he mean? And, then, and I mean, listen, Nick Saban, in my opinion, is the greatest coach that's ever lived. If I, if I were an athlete and I wanted to win a national championship and play pro football, I'd listen to the guy. I wouldn't listen to anybody else. I'd listen to him. And what's he saying? You newspaper reporter and TV reporters, you're telling these kids stuff about how great they are, and they don't need to hear that. They need to listen to me. You're poisoning their minds so I cannot get through their thick skulls what they need to do. Right? Is that fair enough? Well, again, Satan works in the same way. He poisons the minds of those that would hear and believe. Again, Paul speaks of it, he blinds the unbelieving world. So they can't see this great glory and grace of God revealed in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it still goes on today. I mentioned last week, I paralleled that basically uh, the Jews kind of parallel the superficiality uh, world of kind of American professing Christendom. Uh, they're kind of nominally attached to the church. And then the Gentiles kind of parallel the unchurched world out there. That are, they're all superficially religious at some point. Now, it may be very syncretistic. They've taken a little of Christianity and a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Islam, a little bit of New Age, and they've wound it together and you know, got a nice little knitted blanket that they wrap around themselves because they can't, for the most part, Live with the fact, well, if I die, I'm going to hell. No, 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 no. no. If I die, I'm going to the better place. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the good place, and I've got a theology. Now, here's the thing. Probably the number one characteristic of either group, in the church or out of the church, they are absolutely passionately committed to being uncommitted. They, they, listen, they are more committed to being uncommitted than you're committed to being committed. That was really good. I want you all to write that down. I want you to go home and think about it. Go talk to them sometime. Go talk to the church dropouts and see how committed they are to that which is an inch deep and a mile wide. So it still is going on. Still, Satan is still 
deceiving. He is still poisoning people's minds. Talking to a friend this week and kind of reminded him of my one-and-done message to the Birmingham Baptist Association. I have no clue why they don't ask me back, but y'all can kind of figure it out. But I had a little talk, three myths that are destroying the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the myth of the carnal Christian, the uh, perversion of the per perseverance of the saints, and the divorce of Christ as Lord from His work as Savior. Now, I would add a fourth one. I, if, if they ever invite me back, I got a fourth one. The myth that all you got to do is ask Jesus into your heart. Yeah, yeah. And so I was just kind of reminding him that I didn't even get back to my office before I was getting emails about it. And so, again... The world is still like that. That there is absolute commitment to the most shallow thing that the unbelieving world uh, find that brings a, a measure of, um, of comfort to their thoughts, to their soul, to their minds. Okay. In fact, it was interesting this week in the conversation with a Christian. He told me, that, um, you know, I, I guess the truth is, and I've said this for 19 years plus, that most people that go to church cannot, in any succinct, accurate way, communicate the truth of the gospel. In fact, if you ask the person, average church member, what is the gospel? Well, when I was 10 years old, I was at children's camp. I didn't ask what you did. If you're trusting in what you did, by definition, you're lost. Okay? I mean, we, now listen, we love, we, we're Baptists. I mean, we got to shoot somebody. If we don't shoot somebody else, we're going to shoot ourselves, okay? Right? Don't look at me spiritual, okay? We love to jump on the Roman Catholics because they believe that by doing all the things they do, they're saved, their works righteousness. And the other group, the Church of Christ. Oh, they believe you got to be baptized. You're saved by the baptism. We love to jump all over them. I mean, I've been hearing it all my life. But I'm telling you, if the way you think salvation came to you is because of something you did, you better think seriously about the nature of your conversion. Because you are saved by what Christ did on the cross for you. Okay? You better get that clear in your head. Okay? Not by what you did to earn, receive, pry that grace from the hand of God, all of these things. So, all right. Long, long first point. Okay. So, verse 3. They had all of this turmoil, but they remained a long time. They spoke boldly for the Lord. They continued to bear witness to the, to the grace, and even God was doing uh, powerful things uh, among them. Uh, verse 4, uh, there was a great division. Now, Jesus said what? Do not think I have come to bring peace. Come to bring a sword. I'm going to, my message, my, your commitment to me is going to ultimately be costly. Okay? It's going to divide you from those that you value most highly. It could be your family, it could be your friends, it could be your job. But the gospel 
is, has always been and will always be a divisive issue. It was divisive here in this ancient city of Iconium. And so we see they chose up sides, and in verse 6, the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they heard that there was going to be problems, that, that, that they, want, they were actually wanting to stone them there in verse 5, and they learned of it and fled. And here's a really good question for us to think about. When do you stay and when do you go? When opposition arises. And I think of what went on particularly in Canada during COVID. There was a, a number of pastors, but the name that comes to mind is a pastor by the name of James Coates. Many of you kind of followed that story from beginning uh, to end. And when they arrested him for insisting that his church should be open through all of that, they put him in jail, okay? Now, let's just say that hypothetically, and we pray that this will never happen, the authorities for Jefferson County or uh, City of Clay or State of Alabama, maybe even the feds, show up here and say, you can't do this anymore. We're going to take your pastor and put him in jail for speaking hate speech. He's, he's, he said that, that something like homosexuality is sinful and it's wrong. That's, that's harmful to that group of people. We're not going to allow hate speech here in this free and great country of ours. We're taking him to jail. Probably at that point, we would be best to submit. And I, I don't want to know. Please do not tell me. But I would imagine even sitting here today, there are those that are packing the heat. Okay, y'all know what I mean. You're carrying a gun is your right to do so. I would tell you, no, no, no. We have to, we'll have to see it through. Now, again, I'm, I'm alarmed at times, and I, on both sides of this. And I, the, the thing I see in my mind's eye coming down the road is civil authority coming against parents for punishing their child appropriately, for teaching their child biblically, these things are right, these things are wrong. And again, and please, please, please hear me as gently and politely. I got my flu shot this year, okay? I'm, I'm not an anti-vax guy. I got a lot of questions about some of the other things, but I'm definitively against the federal government stepping in and saying you got to get this shot or that shot, okay? I'm sorry. Now, again, I, I, if, if get all the shots you want, folks, okay? And that, that's your personal choice. But for parents that choose, I don't, you know, I've done the research and I'm concerned about this, that, or the other, I have fears. Federal government, state government stepping in and saying, we're going, you're harming those kids, I'm going to take them out of your home. Now, you've hit some hot buttons at that point. And I don't know. I don't have an answer. I don't, I don't have an answer. Other than it's wrong, I mean, but do you go through the process legally? With the, with the cards stacked against you. And of course, you're not going to fight the armed agents of the state. I mean, I don't care how many rounds of ammunition you have, the state has more. Okay? And just, just, but it's just something to think about. That, that, that's, that's the lines that are being drawn in our, in our world. Their choice, I believe it was the right choice, let's go to the next town. We've said what needs to be said. The seed of the gospel has been sown. We're going to go uh, forward. And so uh, they went to the surrounding country, and what did they do? 
Well, you know, we got in trouble previously. That, that didn't go well. What does it say at the end of verse 7? They continue to preach the gospel. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. Whether in season or out of season, that's the only thing we have to say. And our determination must be to preach Jesus and Him crucified. Let's look at the second place that they go as discussed here. In verse 8, they go to Lystra that, that God does uh, a miracle that's kind of detailed uh, here. There's a crippled man. And notice Luke, who, who most people feel uh, was a physician. Uh, he, he gets pretty detailed. He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he'd never walked. In other words, he didn't just sprain his ankle. He, he wasn't just in an injury, but this was a congenital issue. He had never walked a step to highlight the miraculous power of God. Now, you know, here at North Clay, we're, we're blessed. We've got uh, several sets of twins that are part of our church, and, and they're great folks. Uh, most of you know Heath and Keith are ginger twins, okay? Uh, a lot of you, uh, I don't know if it's the, the Aldridge or the Sanders twins, Johnny and Brad back there, I can't tell which one's in front of the other there, but, but if y'all could tell me which one of you's which. But one of the Aldridge Sanders twins uh, sent out a thing, and, you know, most of those guys are just not funny. I mean, they try, but they're just not funny. But, but one thing caught my attention, and he sent this thing out. How many of you heard of the Babylon Bee? It's, it's quite funny. It's quite funny. They're sarcastic, I know. It kind of fits, doesn't it? But anyway, he's going through basically a real quick boom, 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 66 books of the Bible. Just one word, boom, 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 one phrase. Gets to the book of Acts. This is good. <laughs> You're laughing. John MacArthur's worst nightmare. That's the book of Acts. Because, again, John is very, bless his heart, and I love St. John. He's my guy, okay, always will. But very hostile to anything that smacks of tongues or prophetic gifts or continuing gifts of, from the apostolic age and all of those things. And, uh, and so I thought that was the best line in the whole thing. The book of Acts is John MacArthur's worst nightmare. In other words, he's got to explain why they did it and we can't, okay, is kind of the gist of it. Come on now, that's funny. So... They go, they encounter the man, and, and here's an interesting thing, and I've never studied this out, okay? I see it all the time, and I keep meaning to go pull up every citation. But it says this crippled man had the faith to be made well. Now, sometimes when you see a miracle, you see either they were unbelieving, and through the agency of a miracle they came to believe, uh, sometimes they receive the miracle and they, they're never believing. And then sometimes it will mention something like this, that they believed and they received the miracle. And so you, you have different types of, of circumstances. Uh, but suffice it to say, we, we believe uh, that faith is certainly essential to being blessed uh, by God in any shape, form, or fashion. Now, you cannot turn that around and say, if you have an affliction, physical, emotional, financial, relational, whatever affliction that you happen to have, and we've all got them, okay? 
just because that affliction continues, that is not a statement of your lack of faith, okay? Did everybody hear me say that? Just because you are in a time frame in which you're suffering, just because that suffering continues is not a testimony to your lack of faith, okay? It could be exactly what the prescription is from God to refine that faith, though, and that is always the case, okay? So, we, we see uh, that, that God worked, He worked dramatically through uh, these apostles, and, and this thing, obviously, they, they saw it, they knew who the man was. When the guy got up and started uh, walking, uh, they were amazed, and because... They did not have spiritual eyes to see. They did not have spiritual minds to understand. They looked at the two missionaries, uh, Paul and Barnabas, and they thought they were the gods, Zeus and Hermes. Okay? They, they, they saw, and I, I would imagine they even heard the gospel, but because God had not illuminated their minds to have understanding to what went on there, they had a perverted explanation of what had gone on and who had done it. Now, interesting thing, and this is where sometimes having a commentary is, is a real aid. I am told, uh, and I saw this in a number of commentaries, uh, that there in Lystra there was actually a myth that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited those cities. And they had been uh, rebuffed, they, they, had been, uh, they had not been received, and the, the judgment came to the city because of that. And so now these people, because of their uh, belief in myths and because of their darkened minds, they thought, hey, we're not going to do this a second time. Now that we have uh, Zeus and Hermes here with us, we're going to receive them, we're going to receive them well, we're going to offer circum uh, 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 sacrifices, we're going to acknowledge rightly that they indeed or God's. Now, I don't have time to go off on this jag, but it does remind me of the Kipling tale of the man who would be king and how that ended. But this, this did not end that way because immediately uh, the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they recognize what is going on and it is not their goal to, to grab uh, power and possessions for themselves. It is their goal to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember here, they're not preaching to Jews, they're preaching to Gentiles and they take a slightly different track from uh, what they would normally say to the Jews. To the Jews, continuity with Abraham Isaac and Jacob, and they would go off from there over the history of Israel. Here they appeal to the reality of how God has revealed himself to all men over the course of human history. Now, I pointed this out before, and this is very similar to what Paul will do on Mars Hill, okay? And many of us that, that enjoy uh, apologetics and trying to think through these things and uh, philosophical, historical, scientific, rational types of proofs from the gospel, uh, we find a lot of encouragement in here. But one man that, that I really respect, enjoy his writings immensely, is a Presbyterian. God has forgiven him for being a Presbyterian. He's in heaven now. Uh, is James Montgomery Boyce. Love the guy. Love his work. But he is of the mind that quite possibly on Mars Hill, Acts 17, possibly here, Acts 14, that Paul made a strategic error because we don't see what, in either text, a direct mention of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I don't think we've got everything that was said on either occasion, 
And my suspicion is that probably at some point in the uh, discussion, in the presentation, there was a link from this God who had revealed himself to the God who had sent his son, Jesus Christ, uh, into uh, the world that they got to that issue. Uh, but, but here we see them, again, taking a different track, helping them to understand uh, the, the truth of the gospel, the message uh, that uh, they preached. And again, there is a God. He is a God who has made himself known, and you're responsible to know him. And look at verse 16. This is often misunderstood. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. And again, what, what do all men do apart from the initiative of divine grace with whatever type of revelation they have, whether it's the gospel itself or the natural revelation of nature and conscience, what do they do 100% of the time apart from God's initiative on their behalf in their hearts and in their minds? What do they do? Paul says they suppress the knowledge of the truth. God has made who he is and what he's done very clear to all men in all places at all times. They distort and they pervert their own minds, okay? And that's what was going on here, okay? And so, these men hearing this message wouldn't be dissuaded, verse 18. They still wanted to sacrifice to them. They, they were not hearing what Paul was preaching to them. Well, at that point, verse 19, we see the enemies from Antioch and Iconium come and they persuade the crowds and they stoned Paul. They dragged him out for dead. Again, the persecution, the opposition uh, to uh, the gospel. But they did not kill him and notice what he did. Let's go back for one more round. Let's go back and tell them again. And then having done that, uh, they move on uh, beginning their journey back home. Now notice here, uh, in verse uh, 22, they're returning to Lystra, to Iconium, and Antioch. Then in verse 22, strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples. How? With the Word of God. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. Don't quit. Persevere. God is true. God is faithful. God has a purpose, even in affliction. And saying, look at here. End of verse 22, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That is, on our journey to heaven, on this earth, we are going to face difficulty and affliction. It may be the affliction that just simply comes to all men from living in a fallen world. I was talking uh, this morning, and I do this all the time, that, that all of us, have walked, or maybe even you think you're walking through this valley of the shadow of death, the, the, these seasons of affliction. And I'm 64 years old. I could go down and, and list the sorrows that have come uh, to, to my life. And they, they shape us, and they bend us, and they, and they mold us, okay? And God is faithful to use them, that, that none of these things shall ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that He has not forsaken us, that, that He who has begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Christ. 
Christ Jesus. That it is not outside of God's good providence for us. It is God's good providence for us that He is shaping us. Now, notice this, and, and I think Greek prepositions are a bit like English prepositions, that, that they're kind of fluid it, through many tribulations. That's not the same thing as saying by. It is not by our victory over the tribulations. It is simply that as we go through them, God is at work. It is not our work that by overcoming tribulation that we are victorious. It is simply that we are victorious in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go through the tribulation, He is victorious and we share in His victory for us. And so, He encouraged them with that. Then verse 23 I wish I had time to expand on it, but you've run out of time almost. As a part of what they were doing to encourage and to strengthen, they appointed elders in the church. And notice there, multiple elders within each local church for the sake of strengthening and continuing this ministry of gospel preaching for evangelism and gospel preaching for encouragement. Okay? And so... Uh, a lot of times we get into this discussion, is the church an organism or an organization? And there's, there are aspects that both are true. But I believe that God has ordained a type of structure for the well-being of the organism. Okay, We are living. We are the people of God. We looked at a bit Wednesday night. We're the temple of God. But God has also designated a type of order for the sake, for the good of His his people. All right, let's look at this final section here. The mission's completed, and they're going to return uh, to Antioch. And so they pass through these previous uh, cities. They get ready uh, to sail to Antioch, the place they started from there in verse uh, 26. They had fulfilled that which God had assigned uh, to them. They get back to the church, and they arrive, and they begin to tell them all that God had done as they had proclaimed the gospel in these various unknown places. And they had left behind a gospel. Even when they left under threat of persecution, the gospel had been unleashed. The gospel was unchained in these cities. Okay, And so uh, they come back, and, and I believe this is a bit of a reminder of the centrality of the local church, its, its priority and God's plan, that they came back to the place and they, they gave an accounting. Uh, because remember, they sent them. Now, the Holy Spirit sent them too, but they sent them, and so they came back and reported uh, to them all that God had done, all God had been faithful uh, to do. And evidently, uh, they spent quite a bit of time there, that, a time that would eventually lead up to what we'll look at next week, uh, the Jerusalem uh, Council. And so we see these men, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, their, their commitment to the gospel, uh, the, the testimony of the, the Word of God, we see them as being bold and courageous and being discerning, okay? We've had our say here, now it's time to move. We've had our say here, now it's time to move. We, we need to move on. But notice again, they, they went right back through there, even the places that had abused them. We see their humility. They had every opportunity to take advantage of the situation there in Leicester. But again, what was it about? It's not about our advancement. It is not about us receiving personal recognition or accolades or power. It is about the gospel of the crucified Savior. Again, 
they, they've refused to quit. We see the, the centrality of the gospel and the certainty of suffering. It is a fallen world. And I believe this. Now, you can, if you're an unbeliever, you can suffer without Christ because you will suffer. Affliction is coming, believer or non-believer. But as a believer, the promise is not that I will deliver you from the tribulations of the fallen world. In fact, not only do I not deliver you from them, I will take you through them, but you may be tr tried and persecuted because of my gospel. Okay, And so that is a certainty. That is part of what God utilizes in the shaping process. And so they were all about the local church. They left a local church in place. They founded a local church, and they assigned people to continue to do what they had illustrated by preaching the gospel. Now, it is a reminder, I think. I've told you this before. I, I hope that upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a group of people meeting here, right here, geographically speaking, at this point on the map. And that the gospel is being rightly preached, and God is being rightly praised by His people. Okay, Whether it's the 20th anniversary, or the 30th anniversary, or way beyond that, that would be, my, that'd be a great, great thing. Now, I will tell you this. When Christ returns, there will be a robust and vital church that is proclaiming the gospel and they're praising their God, the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. There will be people doing that on earth. I don't know that they'll be doing it here. My hope is they'll be doing it here. But think about the robust churches founded by the apostles over there in that Mediterranean basin. Do you think of anything in that particular geographical area as being a particular testimony to the robustness, to the power of the gospel. For the most part, they're not even thought of as even in the nominal sense that we speak of this country as being Christian. That is, the gospel, because of the perversion and distortion and the weakness, the, the loss of the truth, all of these different things has largely been lost both from it's home, Jerusalem, and going west all the way through Western Europe. We see in sense. Now, I'm not, listen, there is a robust church in every one of those places. Please, there's always a remnant. But in terms of the size, we don't see much. And it's up to, we have been made a steward of the gospel, this church, for this season, for this time. And it is our goal to continue to train people up to inform them so that long after I'm gone, the gospel will be proclaimed and God will be praised in this place for a witness to a world whose hope is still and its only hope is the gospel of a crucified and resurrected Savior that still gives me courage and boldness and wisdom and comfort for the world in which we now live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your testimony to that grace, for our experience of that grace. Uh, I pray that by your grace, your word would penetrate our hearts, 
Lord, for those who believe, we would be encouraged. Lord, for those who do not believe, that you would so illuminate their minds and open their hearts even, that they would believe your gospel, that they would turn from sin and turn to the only Savior, whose name is Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.